So um, let me read our passage this morning that he's going to be preaching from, and we will pray for him. First, I need my Bible. all started with the face mic not working this morning. It's all downhill from there. All right, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, whether our exile is literal or metaphorical, whether it feels like forever or maybe even sometimes a vacation, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to hear your word and to hear your will, knowing that it is not arbitrary. It is for our good. It is for the good of our neighbor. And it is for for the glory of your love extending to and redeeming and transforming every inch of this creation. Lord, uh, bless us as we hear John uh, open up your word this morning. Give us eyes to see your truth and ears to listen to your grace. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks. Oh, it's, it works. Good. Um, so traveling, I don't usually bring as many books as I would want because I have my iPad, and so I'm going to do the thing that I kind of hate. I'm going to read my Bible from my iPad, but um, it's better than no Bible at all, huh? Thank you, Brad, very much. I bring you greetings from the PCA denomination. Uh, myself and two colleagues, there's Dave Andreg and Stephen McGinnis are here working with some RUF campus pastors, and I'm doing a few other things that, that, that Brad referenced. And um, it, is, it is our pleasure to be here, and I am so grateful to you all for giving me the chance to um, reflect on God's Word together with you. And um, yeah, we're going to do that from the passage that Brad read for us earlier uh, from Jeremiah 29. Um, it's Jeremiah's letter to a group of exiles, and so I thought I'd, I'd get us into the passage this morning um, with another letter. This is a, a letter that's contained in the collection of the correspondences of St. Augustine. 
um, there's an interesting back and forth between Augustine and a man named Boniface. Boniface was a high-ranking Roman general who served as a sort of governor or regional prefect in North Africa, thus his connection with Augustine. And Boniface was also a relatively new Christian. So he was a powerful man working for the Roman military and the Roman government, and he was a relatively new convert. And he was wrestling with how his Christianity intersected with his responsibilities and his job. And he was worn down by the cutthroat politics, by the ethical temptations that he got placed in, by the immorality that he saw all around him, and he was honestly not sure if he could work in good conscience for the world's largest pagan empire. And he wanted out. He wanted to leave his post. He wanted to get as far away from um, what he viewed as the evils and sinful culture of Rome as he possibly could, and he wanted to take up a life of, of, mona- of the, a monastic life, what he referred to in his letters as a life of holy leisure, which actually sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Um, and so he wrote to Augustine, and he asked his advice, and the thrust of his letter is, isn't it better for me to just stay away? Shouldn't I just opt out? remove myself from this, you know, swirling culture of paganism and sin and evil and just, and just figure out a way to live out my faith privately. And maybe you can sympathize. I can. Because I get the tension he's wrestling with. I get it. It's hard to figure out the relationship of our faith to a broader culture especially when the culture and the society that we live in is oppositional to us. Maybe it's better to opt out. Well, i tell you that story or, read, or bring up that correspondence um, because Jeremiah 29 is another letter that speaks directly to this Now, it's helpful to know a little bit of historical background of what's going on in the life of Israel at this point. So, this is, if you know your your Old Testament much, you'll remember that the the nation or the empire of Babylon besieged and captured, overturned the city of Jerusalem, and the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, um, enslaved and carried away into exile in Babylon multiple waves of Israelites. And, um, and he took them into Babylon, which is, and if, you, if you know much about the Bible at all, you know that Babylon is bad news, right? Babylon, the, the literal city of Babylon, was a, was a pagan, really evil place. And Babylon became a sort of proxy for everything that opposes God in the Bible. And so going to Babylon is, 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 is really, really bad, and that's where they were about to go in mass to a foreign land to serve foreign gods, um, into an alien and oppositional culture, into a city that had a value system that was polar opposite of theirs. And they were exiled enemies 
They were under subjection. This was, a, this was a horrible situation that Israel was getting ready to go into. And Jeremiah writes them this letter to prepare them, to orient them into what it means for them to live well as the people of God in a city that was defined almost exclusively against them. Now, I want to be very clear that we as Christians in late modern America are not in exile in the same ways that they were. We are not enslaved. We are not really persecuted. Um, We don't face a fraction of the hardship that they faced, but we do have points of connection with this passage. We live in a pluralistic and fragmented society. We live in a, in a culture where there is very little consensus on faith. There's very little consensus on um, what we would call ethics and, and morality. And um, we live in a culture where our faith, our Christian faith, is um, often dismissed or mocked, where people may look down at us derisively or, or, or maybe even pity us, right? And so... We're dealing with the same tension. We're dealing with the same tension that Boniface was dealing with. We're dealing with the same tension that Jeremiah knew the people of Israel were going to deal with. And so his words to them are words of wisdom for us. And um, and so that's what I want to explore this morning. And and I'm going to do so by starting with Jeremiah 29, verse 7, which I believe is the centerpiece of this, this whole extended discourse. Here's what he says. You want to know how to live? This is the first big question. How to live in an oppositional culture. Um, Here's what he says. Uh, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Seek the the welfare. In other translations, that word welfare is translated as peace. Seek the peace of the city. Uh, the, The Hebrew word is the word shalom. You may be familiar with shalom. Um, And I think that that it warrants reflection. When, when we hear the word peace, seek the peace of the city, I think in English, we often default pretty quickly to, well, okay, well, that means no more violence, right? No more hatred. Um, you know, if a war ends in peace, that means there's no more shooting and dropping bombs. But in a, in a biblical understanding, shalom means much more. Shalom doesn't just mean the absence of, of violence and opposition, shalom means the presence of flourishing and thriving. It's a, it's a holistic term. A culture that is experiencing shalom is experiencing economic flourishing, relational intimacy in all appropriate ways, vocational thriving. In other words, shalom hints at a world the way God intended, the way it was supposed to be. And what Jeremiah is telling us is that as we live and work and play in our city, that's our goal, that kind of thriving, that kind of holistic flourishing. So, how? What does it mean to seek the peace of the city? Well, um, he tells us in verse 5, Build houses. Now remember, they're going into exile in the most evil city they can imagine. And here's what Jeremiah says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Build a house. Plant a garden. Do your work. Uh, the idea he's getting out here is permanent, right? Per- permanence. He's, he's essentially saying to them, you, you do the work. Invest the time. Invest the effort. Invest the, the resources, the, 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 the economic resources, the emotional connections that you make to people and places, and make a place for yourself. I talked to a number of you earlier this morning just chatting, and um, several of you have moved here very, very recently, and what did you do? You found a place, right? You bought a house or at least rented a place. You found a job. Um, You don't go through that effort to build a house and cultivate a garden if you're not going to be in a place very long. If you're only passing through, you find a hotel. Jeremiah says, settle in. Settle into this new culture and build a life here. In other words, sorry friends, you can't opt out. Now, this is totally at odds with the message that they were hearing from other so-called prophets. I'm going to go back to verse... um, or, or, hold on. Yeah, some verses earlier that I just forgot to ask Brad to, to leave, but basically there's this false prophet back in, in chapter 28. So one, um, one chapter before, chapter 28, a, the, the, there's a prophet who says to Israel, within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, um, the king of Babylon, took away. And um, he says, I'm going to bring you back. You're going to be back within two years. You're just passing through. Um, and what Jeremiah is saying is, no, those, those other prophets are they're false prophets. They're lying to you. You know, They're telling you, don't worry. Within two years, God's going to bring you back. He's going to restore the temple. Um, he's going to defeat Babylon. In other words, you're going to get your comfortable life back. You're going to get religious hegemony back. You're going, to, you're going to get the government in the hands of your kinds of people, um, and your enemies are going to be defeated, right? Just hold on till then, and, 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 that, and you'll be back. And that means you don't have to learn to engage. You don't have to settle in and do the work to, to settle into the city. Now, This is one of two wrong ways that Christians can inadvertently find themselves living in the midst of a hostile culture. And this is the danger of what I would call tribalism or maybe sectarianism, right? Um, Like you don't have to live well in this place and with this people that are are so different. So what you should do is just hold on because you're not going to be here long and that means you just gather yourself into an enclave a protective little bubble, and you insulate yourself from the broader culture, and you, and, you, and you avoid it. And you don't engage with people that are not like you, and you don't have to expose your kids to them and their morals and their faith convictions, and you don't have to learn how to navigate the, the rocky terrain of a pluralistic society. You just steer clear. Keep yourself pure from the evil out there, right? So that's, you understand? Tribalism. Hang in with your tribe. The only people who matter are my people. Others I can ignore, I can judge, I can disdain. 
certainly don't have to care for them. Certainly don't have to serve them. And what Jeremiah says to them is, no. Build a house. Plant a garden. Do the work. It's the same thing Augustine said to Boniface uh, when he answered his letter. It's interesting to me that I bet that's not what Boniface was expecting. Augustine had founded monasteries. Augustine had written his own monastic rule, right? He understood that there was times and appropriate context for people to withdraw for a period of time. But to Boniface, he said, no. Hold on, hang fast. The work you're doing is good work, and it's work that serves and protects the city of Rome. So don't opt out. Hang in. So, for us as Christians in our cities, make a home, have a presence, live life, invest time, resources, energy, participate in public life. Right? Live, work, and play in the place where God has placed us with the people God has placed us with. Um, eat at the restaurants, shop at the shops, join the book clubs or the PTA or kids' school. Right? Live out a vocation, not just to make money, but to serve and love your neighbor. It's interesting to me that Jeremiah says uh, two things, build a home and plant a garden, right, and do family life. What, what are those? Well, those are the tools of hospitality, house and food, house plus food plus Seek the welfare of the city equals hospitality. Open your home right, to all kinds of people. Build relationships across boundaries. Right? You all have an amazing opportunity to, to do this. I was talking to Brad earlier this week on the phone, and I have not experienced this, but I know that you guys have lived through a season of really devastating fires. And I don't want to minimize in any way the tragedy or hardship of that on you or on anybody else, but it just occurs to me, what an opportunity for the church to sacrificially serve a suffering community. And I know that you guys are thinking about that, but um, you know, things like that is what it means to seek the welfare of the city. Okay, two points that I think may be counterintuitive here, but are worth noting. The first is this. Do you notice how ordinary and mundane Jeremiah's words are? This is just normal stuff. And it's a reminder to us that faithfulness is often just normal, routine stuff of life done in service to God and neighbor. Home, family, job, commerce, it's not big gestures. It's not grand, influential achievements. It's quiet determination to love your neighbor in ordinary life. And those things are like threads. Those acts of love are like threads. On their own, they're, they feel fragile and slight and easily breakable, but a community together doing them over and over again weaves those threads together into a beautiful 
fabric of faithfulness. So that's counterintuitive point number one. Um, this is ordinary and mundane. Counterintuitive point number two. It's not explicitly religious. Did you catch that? Jeremiah didn't say, all right, when you get to Babylon, set up a makeshift synagogue, find a rabbi to teach you, and tr- see if you can locate a priest and a way to do the sacrifices so that you can worship and, for goodness sakes, keep the liturgical calendar. That's not what he said. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have shouldn't or didn't try to do some of those things to maintain their life of worship, but that's not what Jeremiah said. Now, that raises the question, though, of, okay, what about their faith convictions? What about their faith convictions? You can go to the Rotary Club and hear a speech about serving your neighbor and seeking the good of the city, being a good citizen, right? So what is... What about the distinctiveness of their faith? Well, the answer to that question is embedded in verse 6, where he says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So a couple of things. He's, he's saying, you know, build a family. Multiply and do not decrease. So on the surface, it's pretty clear what he's saying. Like, right, make families, make babies. Build families, but he's getting at more. Um, and, and the reason that we know he's getting at more is because King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, wasn't just transporting Israelites to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to transform Israelites into Babylonians. Um, verse 29, I mean, sorry, chapter 29, 2, right before where Brad started reading, um, is a reference to this where he talks about um, the Babylonians um, carrying away the king and queen, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, into exile. So what this is a reference to is that the first wave of exiles into Babylon was kind of the elite class, the ruling class, the, the, the brains of the operation, And we get a snapshot into what happened in that wave of the exile in the book of Daniel. And maybe you remember or have read the book of Daniel, but if not, it's pretty straightforward. Daniel was one of these elite, young kind of intellectuals in in Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar brought Daniel and his cohort, uh, his friends and the people who were like him, into Babylon's cultural institutions, and he taught them the language and literature, and he educated them in Babylonian religious practice and cultural norms, and he groomed them to use their skills to serve in the Babylonian government as Babylonians. He gave them new names, right, which is a symbol of giving them a new identity, so that at the end of the, of the program, if everything went the way he wanted to, these young Israelites would no longer be recognizably Israelites. They would be fully assimilated Babylonians. Right? And the implication is clear. You want to live here? Fine. Just become like us. Just be like us. Cast off your faith and embrace our religion, right? Abandon your cultural norms and and, and embrace ours. 
um, you know, mold your moral convictions into something that looks a little bit more like ours and form new identities. Just become Babylonian. Then you'll be fine. You'll fit in here just fine. That's Babylon's goal. And that's the opposite of the danger of tribalism, isn't it? If tribalism says everybody stick together, avoid contact with the outside world, protect our purity, assimilation says just blend seamlessly into culture so that sooner or later nobody can tell the difference. Just disappear. So, with that background, you can see that when God says through Jeremiah to the people, multiply and do not decrease, that means more than just make babies. That means preserve your distinct identity in a culture that wants you to be a chameleon. In a culture that wants you to change and blend in, hold your distinctive distinctiveness. I had an experience of this when I was in college. Um, I was a Christian, but if you watched a video of my life, you probably wouldn't have been able to tell. And I didn't do terrible things, although I've got some regrets. I just blended in. I just absorbed the mores and um, just approach and attitude of the students at large. But I had a roommate who was also a Christian. Um, but if you watched a video of his life, you'd know it. Now, it, it, he, it, why? Because he held his faith just so clearly and so openly. And, and he still had a great time. He still had a, a great experience in school. He went to a lot of the same parties as I did. He, we, we hung around with the same people. We shared the same friends. We did very, very similar activities. He was as involved and engaged as anyone, but everyone knew where he stood. Everyone knew he was a believer. And it wasn't because he was holier than thou or judgmental or, you know, annoyingly pious. It was because he just was clear about his faith, right? He, he made a home in that culture, but he didn't assimilate. He didn't blend in. Now, I think we all can feel this, right? We live in a culture that wants us to blend in. We live in a culture that, that, that wants us to assimilate, right? It says to us, hey, if you want to be accepted, that's fine. Just be like us. And in late modern America, be like us means to accept that the good life is defined by the American dream of economic success and expressive individualism, Right? that says, I pursue my rights, that's the highest good, above anybody else's um, rights, above all else, right? And so, right, want to be like us? Do that. Chase the American dream. Want to be like us? You know, just learn to be okay with a really liberated sexual ethic. Want to be like us? Just admit that all faiths are essentially equally valid and subject to private opinion. Um... Then you'll be fine. Just blend in. This is how we get a job. This is how we make friends. This is how we get ahead in the world. This is how we open doors for our kids so they can get into the good school and get into the good college and get in the good grad program and then start the treadmill all over again. What God says is this. 
as you make a home in the city, as you invest, as you work, as you do hospitality, do so as authentic Christians, holding on to your faith in a way that makes you distinctive. This is one reason for the means of grace. This is one reason why, you know, the the discipleship incubator that you guys are going to start is so important. This is one of the reasons why gathered worship is so important and why, um, you know, Scripture and prayer and serious reflection on the gospel in community is so important, right? It's, these are not just ticking off the boxes, and we're not performing for God's love when we do them. These are the things that remind us who we are that recalibrate the compass of our hearts that so easily wanders off course, that tell us again how loved and secure we are in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that re-narrate our story back to us away from an empty, cynical individualism to a proper confidence in God and His promises to renew all things. Friends, when we get that, when we are constantly reoriented back into that reality, that's when we have the resources to step into the city and seek its peace because we know the source of peace and the contours of what it should look like. And this gets at the next big point, right? We've been thinking from now um, about the question of how to live. What does Jeremiah say? How to live in the city. Seek the peace of the city by making a home there and by holding on to your distinctiveness. But now we get to the question of why. What's the motivation? What's the resources uh, for doing that? And there are breadcrumbs sort of dropped through this letter that that give us an idea. So, for instance, in verse 4, the very first verse that Brad read to us early, thus says the Lord of hosts, Um, to the exiles that I have sent into exile. I sent you there, friends. Don't forget this. I put you where you are. This is no accident. Verse 7 says it again. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And then he goes on to say, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for the city. Pray to me. Verse 11. Um one of the most badly, poorly applied verses in the whole Bible, and yet here it is, and so let's apply it properly. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, there's that word again, peace, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, right? Circumstances may look evil, but I have a plan for your shalom, for your restoration, okay? Verse 14, Um, Or verse 13, you will seek me and you will find me. I will be found by you and I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you and I will bring you back. So I I just read to you snippets from several verses. And what I want to suggest is that the thing that all of those have in common is that they are are exclusively God-focused. Right? So why do we work for shalom? Why do we seek the peace of the city? Why do we work to engage without losing our distinctiveness? We work because God is at work. 
right? And our life here is a part of God's larger plan to restore all things. That's why we work, right? We seek shalom. We seek the common good of our neighbors for that reason, right? That's why we hang in rather than opt out. That's why we hold our faith rather than assimilate. Because every effort we make to seek peace writ small, God is using and is done in the service of a God who is bringing peace writ large. Okay? We live this way in our culture because we're formed in the character of our God, because we trust the promises of our God, and we apply our capacities as image bearers in the service of of our God and the things that he loves, right? And they heard that, right? They, they heard it. God has a plan. He will restore. And, um, you know, and, he's, and, it, and he says, I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. You're in exile. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. And history teaches us that that actually happened. Roughly 70 years into their exile, they were returned uh, to Jerusalem, but to say that it was a disappointment to them is an understatement. Because when they got back to Jerusalem, um, the city was in ruins. The city walls were a shambles, leaving them vulnerable and um, unsafe. And worst of all for them, the temple of their God was thoroughly destroyed. In other words, when they got what they wanted, their hopes were crushed. And that means they wanted the wrong thing. And their hopes were misplaced. Hebrews 11 tells us about Abraham who longed for a city. It says he looked forward to the city that has foundations and whose architect and builder is God. And that reminds us that it is good and right to long for a city, to long for a culture, to long for a world that is renewed, that is free from sin, that is utterly safe, that's devoted to God. But the experience of the Jewish exiles is a reminder that this longing will never be filled by any earthly city, by any earthly nation, by any earthly culture, including ours. So hope for the right city. Set your hopes for the right things. Our hope is not for Jerusalem rebuilt. Our hope is not America made great. Our hope is the hope that John the Apostle narrates in Revelation 21 It's the new Jerusalem, the city of heaven coming down from heaven to earth at the end of all things as a a sort of a proxy for a, a a renewed creation, a new heavens and a new earth, free from sin, free from tears, free from death, free from illness and pain and anything that causes sorrow, a place of beauty. That's our hope. That's the city that God wants us to long for, right? It's his plan to renew all things through the work of Jesus. I'm going I'm to close with this, uh, some verses that I skipped. This is verses 8 and 9. 
Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them. That's a reference to Hananiah, the false prophet, back in chapter 28, who says, don't worry about it. You're going to be back in two years. Everything's going to be fine. He says, they're lying to you. You're being lied to. The false prophets of easy peace urging tribalism and sectarianism or lying to you. The siren song of culture wooing us to just assimilate because it's so much easier is lying to you. And Jeremiah wants God's people to be a people of the truth. The Czech poet Václav Havel um, came to prominence as a leader in the Velvet Revolution um, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall, as communism around uh, the world was starting to crumble and lose its hold, for two weeks, peaceful demonstrations in Czechoslovakia eventually led to the, um, to the undoing of an oppressive communist government. And Václav Havel, a poet, had become a, a leader in that effort. And he was asked one time about the movement's success. And here's what he said. He said, we existed for years as a parallel society. We wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go into the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your lies. Friends, I think that is a beautiful image of what the church of Jesus Christ can and should be. God's people making our homes in the city where he's placed us, holding our faith in the midst of an oppositional culture and having our imaginations and our convictions formed by the gospel, learned and rehearsed in the stories and songs and poetry of worship so that we know the truth so well that we can step into the streets of our cities and the voting booths and the neighborhood parks, and the schools, and our neighbor's living room, and say with our words and our lives, we love you, we respect you, even if you are against us, we're for you, and we're doing our best to seek your good, but we don't believe your lies. We don't believe that the value of a life is determined by productivity or efficiency or net worth. We don't believe that government is simply an exercise of will to power. We don't believe that violence is the answer to disagreement. We don't believe that the poor and vulnerable should be left to deal with their own situation. We don't believe that justice is a commodity to be bought and sold. We don't believe that people of other races or social class, or political views are inferior. And we don't believe that faith is simply a matter of personal preference. We believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We believe in the God of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the God of St. Peter and St. Paul and St. John, the apostles, the God of Martin Luther 
and John Calvin and Martin Luther King Jr. We believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who made the world and declared it good and made men and women in his image and that means that we believe the world is worth loving and serving and that people of all kinds are worth dignity and respect. And we believe that God is renewing and restoring all things through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and that he calls us to faith in him and to trust in his promises and to live lives that reflect his unrelenting passion to bring shalom to all creation. That's what we believe. And that's how we're going to live. Seeking the peace of the city because we serve the God of peace. Let's pray together. Lord, even as I even as I was talking and saying my own words, I was convicted of how frequently I failed to, to follow Jeremiah's urging, of how easy it is for me to just want to fit in or to avoid people or places or things that I find challenging. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that you'd renew all of us and our conviction that, that, that through the finished work of Christ, all of these promises are true. And... Um, now, reorient our hearts once again in these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys have heard me many times while introducing communion talk about how this, this table is for our nourishment, that even though we're eating physical um, bread and wine or juice, that, that it is spiritually nourishing, that God meets us there. It is through his presence that this happens. Um, and it hit me while John was preaching that that nourishment we so often take and leverage toward our ends, either toward a tribalism or an assimil assimilation. We, we think that God is going to nourish us to uh, live out our great American dream, but he doesn't. That's not how this works. In fact, whenever the church has been guilty of that tribalism or that, or that assimilation, the table here is, is our opportunity to change course. It's actually the catalyst that helps us move from either tribalism or assimilation, whichever direction we may be tempted in, in whatever circumstance, toward one of hospitality, but not because we are bootstrapping our own hospitality for our neighbor, but because Christ is our host. That, that the, the way and path toward repentance from those things is actually to first accept God's hospitality in love. That's incredible. You, nobody will tweet that. That won't be a political policy. You won't see that attitude anywhere. There is nothing that makes us, that invites us, or, or invites us into grace instead of punishment first. That's extraordinary love. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends, with his disciples, who, how to put it, two on the nose, but they were morons just like us. We we're idiots who are tempted toward one direction or another to fall off the horse into tribalism or assimilation and don't understand what Jesus is doing most of the time. And he says, it doesn't matter. If anything, that's why I am broken for you. Likewise, he takes the wine, he pours it out, and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. That day that Jeremiah promises will come where, I, where, where your sins will never mark you again. That day is now. 
because I pour out my blood for the cleansing of your sin. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, that is actually how you navigate the third way between and apart from assimilation and tribalism. He says, you proclaim my death until I return. He says, this is the sacrament that distinguishes you in the midst of all other kinds of bread and wine. This table with my presence is, is what makes you unique. It's what, how, what I make you as unique. That is extraordinary love using ordinary everyday life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for your invitation that never expires and yet is urgent. Not because you will take it away or withhold your hospitality, but because you, eager, you are eager and long for us to receive it. That we might taste and see that you are good. Lord, we thank you. And we ask that you nourish our souls, even as this bread and wine nourishes our bodies, that we may live in a world that is very much still in process. Lord, it is on your faithfulness to your people that we base this hope. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.